the individual investor show. You bought it all, aren't you? You hear one thing, they all need money. Now let's see if they're brave enough to earn it. Hello, and welcome to the Individual Investor Show. My name is Jenna Brashear, your host for this afternoon. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you all had a wonderful week. So have you ever heard of the term FOMO? It refers to the fear of missing out on something such as hanging out with friends, going to a winning sports event, or seeing your favorite singer in concert, and even investing in new, exciting opportunities. Many key factors like psychology contribute to the movement of the market. And investors need to be aware of these considerations in order to thrive in today's volatile environment. Even though the phenomenon of meme stocks, securities that gather a following caused by social media, is relatively new, investors need to understand how these events impact their own portfolios. Tonight's event is the Individual Investor Show, the emotional psychology and behavior behind investing. In this episode, Charles Roplet sits down with Spencer Jacob, author of The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors, to discuss the phenomenon of meme stocks, how social media platforms like Reddit have fueled a new world of stock investing, and the pitfalls that have come along with these new developments. And in the second part of tonight's broadcast, I sit down with Charles Raplet to discuss his latest article in the AAII journal, What Traits Do Individual Investors Consider When Buying Stocks, where he surveyed AAII members to gain insights into the various stock approaches and thought processes they use, such as how they find ideas, the characteristics they focus on, and their preferred data sources. But before we jump in, I do want to preface tonight's presentation by reminding our viewers that AAII is a nonprofit educational group and is not a financial advisor, and thus is not able to give personal advice. Every investor is different. That's why our goal with each broadcast and article is to educate you on how to make better financial decisions. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our presentation. Spencer, you studied and uh, written about investor psychology quite a bit. Um, do you think uh, the meme stock craze was a instance of history repeating itself in terms of past bubbles and or at least rhyming with past bubbles. Um, it did seem like there's some similarities between what happened uh, recently uh, and the dot-com craze. Yes, to some extent, there always are similarities because human psychology is, is unchanging. Uh, and that, that's why you can look back to the 1600s, uh, you can look back to the 1800s, the early 1900s, to uh, the last couple of, of big bubbles and manias, panics, and crashes uh, always seem to take the same pattern. Um, and so that's why they said that the four most different dangerous words of business are this time is different. But there certainly were unique psychological characteristics to this specific instance. Um, and by unique, I mean that some of the companies involved, some of the businesses involved uh, became very adept at pushing people's psychological buttons unlike in the past, um, they became much better at it. They, um, in, in social media companies involved uh, were very good at making content go viral and keeping people engaged and, and producing people who would be widely followed. And the brokers involved, Robinhood specifically and its many imitators were very good at pushing all kinds of psychological buttons, inducing FOMO, uh, getting people very excited and getting to people to be hyperactive, which was central and is central to their uh, their business. Great. And as a follow-up, are there any misperceptions about the mean stop craze uh, you think should be clarified? 
Well, uh, I think the big misconception and that hence the title of my book, The Revolution That Wasn't, is that uh, it was seen as Wall Street being defeated and uh, there suddenly being a level playing field between retail investors and Wall Street in the sense that you could uh, do just as well as or outwit Wall Street. And I think what people don't understand um, just generally is that Wall Street is a very big place and it's primarily made up of middlemen. So there are people who are trying to, to make money, professional investors, uh, but those professional investors, generally speaking, invest other people's money. They, uh, they do okay if they don't even track the market and they do quite well if they can beat the market. So it's they win a little or they win a lot generally. Uh, they're not using their own money and going out there and gambling. Of course, there, there are people like that, individual speculators who are very savvy, but for the most part, no. Uh, and most of Wall Street is made up of people who uh, take some little part of your transaction, whether it's a, a market maker or a stock exchange or a trader uh, who deals with, with customer orders uh, or the retail broker itself. And those people do well simply because there's an uptick in activity, which is what this whole story caused. You, you had retail investors go from few, less than 10% uh, of turnover on uh, U.S. stock markets to well over a third during the height of this, this mania. And that's an unalloyed good for Wall Street writ large. Um, what the, got the headlines was that a, a couple of hedge funds had multi-billion dollar holes blown in them, which makes it such an exciting story. And, and so, yeah, they were hoodwinked and they were ambushed by this crowd of, of traders who organized uh, on social media. And I, I tell the story and it's an incredible story, but I, I also am a bit of a party pooper in pointing out that um, th those guys as a group didn't do so great. And Wall Street writ large had a great month, better than usual. And they, they, they always, almost always do well. And what about the individual investor? If they find themselves uh, seeing a, a bubble going on or a craze, um, and maybe they feel the urge to participate, um, what advice would you give them in terms of trying to control their emotions and approach it in a more uh, rational sense? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that there, there are two basic um, approaches that, that people take mentally or two basic rationales that they, they use to, uh, to get into something that's taking off like a rocket. Uh, there's a group that um, you know, maybe doesn't know enough, uh, that's a minority, that doesn't know enough to know that uh, trees don't grow to the sky and they'll jump on a bandwagon and, um, you know, and maybe they'll get off and maybe they won't in, in time, or maybe they'll get on, get off, get back on, get back off, you know, and, and, and wind up regretting it when all the, the chips are, are, uh, are counted and added up. Um, but I think the majority uh, are pretty cynical about it. Certainly most of the people who I spoke with for this book uh, realized that it was a case of the, the kind of the greater fool theory and they were just convinced that they would find a greater fool. But that's a very dangerous game to play. You have to be, uh, you know, even though I think the best student of, of market psychology is not going to be able to identify the, identify the point at which uh, a mania turns around. And, uh, and of course, there are a lot of, of false alarms and false signals, and there certainly were uh, during this episode. And then there were outside events, outside individuals who further stoked this rally that you couldn't have known about. Elon Musk came in and, you know, and reignited it uh, halfway through with a single tweet, you know, single one word tweet, GameStop. So it's, it's really, 
very, very difficult to play that game. It's a dangerous one to play. Of course, there are, are immense riches to be had if you can get it right, but there's there's no rhyme or reason to uh, to the pattern uh, of, of when things turn around. And so it, your, your odds of success are so much higher if you get rich slowly rather than attempt to get rich quickly. I think that's, that's just always something to recognize as an individual investor. And people often ask me, you know, um, before this episode, people have asked me about things like high frequency trading and, and what have you. They've said, how, how do we even compete? You know, you have these, these computers that can trade in, uh, in nanoseconds and they're much faster than us and it's not fair. And my answer to that is like, it's a tree falling in the woods, you know, just like this is a tree falling in the woods. You know, if you are a, a long-term investor and you don't pay attention to this, even if you, this whole episode were to have, have occurred and you were unaware of it, you went on vacation at the beginning and came back at the end and you were uh, in Timbuktu with your cell phone switched off, it didn't matter to you. It, it, it was like a tree falling in the woods. And it's the same thing with high frequency trading. Those people can only be successful because there are uh, people on the other side of the trade who are unsuccessful. It's a zero sum game but it has no effect on the value of the businesses in which you invested. Um, and, and therefore it is really something that you should learn not to worry about. Well, it's interesting you brought up a high frequency trade. So I was gonna ask you about, ta- about proposals to tax financial transactions. Then obviously part of this of the issue with GameStop and AMC and the other meme stocks, you had Robinhood offering free trades, yeah. uh, essentially with this a swipe. Um, could you share your views about how you think if there were to be a financial transaction tax, how that might actually impact uh, really long-term individual investors? Yeah, so the arc of history is shown that trading has become easier and cheaper progressively over time. But the difference here is that it went from costing something to costing nothing. And that you, you kind of have crossed a Rubicon psychologically once something costs nothing. Uh, you think about it very little or not at all if it costs nothing. And, and so you don't even stop to say like, well, if I were to trade a hundred times or a thousand times or whatever, how much would that eat into my returns? And so that, that led directly to this explosion in trading that was instrumental to this story it was trading costing zero. Now a financial transactions tax, a lot of the people who are proponents of it, Bernie Sanders and what have you, they really see, see it uh, as a way to soak the rich. They're not looking to, to do it, um, you know, in order to to help anyone, but uh, you know, but the federal government and and to hurt Wall Street. Um, my uh, my interest in a financial transaction tax or some other speed bumps uh, is that it would slow things down. It would add some costs. So basically, it's become so efficient that it, it's dangerous uh, because you you don't stop the thing. You don't even stop. people. I mean, when when trades cost five dollars or ten dollars, people did all kinds of dumb things and didn't stop to think, but you've put that tendency on steroids by making it free. And so by instituting at least a, a small transactions tax, and there are many issues that you would have to preempt in terms of you know not making pension funds, you know, kind of drag them down in terms of their ter- turnover and stuff like that. But if you made the cost uh, minimal, but, but something, um, then it would put a speed bump on this, this latest wave of speculation, which is d- d- damaging to young investors health and returns and and ultimately what their their sort of their trust in the stock market because it, it always ends badly um, you know uh, there are other guardrails you could put up but they're much more difficult guardrails for example you could make it you could make 
uh, phone-based apps clunkier. But how do you do that? How would you enact a rule to, to make that happen? Uh, or you could make people wait for a second, you know, or you could make trades, you know, or you could make it more difficult to get approved for brokerage accounts. But all those things would be uh, very difficult to implement and uh, very difficult to argue and, you know, and legally questionable, you know. So a financial transactions tax as kind of as onerous as it seems, if it were modest and there were enough exemptions, I, I think would, um, you know, and, and specifically one aimed at individuals, not at big institutions. Uh, it, it would raise a little bit of money, but that's not the main point in my mind. It would, um, it, it would protect people from themselves. Great. Thanks so much, Spencer. I appreciate it. Hi, Charles. Thanks so much for uh, meeting with me today to discuss your latest article featured in the April 2022 issue of the AAII Journal, What Traits Do Individual Investors Consider When Buying Stocks? Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. And uh, so I just wanted to jump right in. Uh, so for the big queue this month, we surveyed AAII members on a few different questions. Uh, so can you delve into what we were hoping to find through those answers? Sure, absolutely. So we know a lot of AAI members pick individual stocks and hold individuals, individual stocks in their portfolio. Uh, so we thought there'd be interest among other AI members about how AI members in general are picking stocks. What are they looking for? Whether buy rules, whether sell rules. Um, and so part of the things we do as an organization is we love to give members a chance to, to talk in the journal, be featured in the journal, uh, but also give other AI members a chance to see what they're doing uh, and perhaps get ideas and, and learn from them. So kind of a collective brain, so to speak. That makes sense. And that's really helpful um, for, you know, for people to look at different approaches and uh, different perspectives between as they're investing. Um, so one of the first questions um, that we asked them was, was the uh, characteristics that they that would describe their approach to investing. So I wanted to ask you what topped the list and was it surprising to you? Sure. So it wasn't too surprising. Uh, the three things that topped the list was value, dividends, and growth. And dividends is not surprising. Um, our average AI member is near retirement age or in retirement age. So you do have this preference uh, for uh, investing, but we do have a, you know, with 160,000 members, so to speak, uh, we have a wide variance, some very young investors, um, obviously some investors who are well into retirement and, and a range in between. Uh, but we also saw high preferences for value. Uh, we saw high preferences for growth. Um, we as an organization, uh, we're objective or unbiased, but we do know the data shows over the long term, uh, value, low value works. And so we've constantly been talking about how over the long term, how value works. And we've done this for decades. So it's not surprising to see a preference for value among AI members, uh, but we also saw growth and a lot of members like growth. They like to see companies uh, with, with growth because that's a sign. If you have obviously higher sales, higher earnings, it's going to support a higher stock price. So not surprising to see that at all. Um, and, and it was, you know, some a slight preference towards value and a slight preference towards dividend, but uh, a huge portion of growth. And there were members who both want growth and value. So it's not our value and dividends. So we can't necessarily say it's mutually exclusive among all three members. Uh, what was interesting, though, when we looked at, at technical analysis, because we do an annual survey of our membership, we do this internally, uh, we do see a lot of people who use fundamentals with technical analysis. And 
it was a small, it wasn't similar uh, percentage points, but it was a small segment of members who said, yeah, I use technical analysis. Uh, most of our respondents said, you know what, I'm more, I consider more fundamental indicators uh, and more, you know, that's probably more descriptive of their investing style. That makes sense. And um, before we get into a little bit more, I wanted to ask, you know, about the sample size of who took part in the survey and then maybe a little bit of background uh, of the actual survey, um, you know, over the last couple of years. Sure. So we, we started the survey a couple of years ago. And when we send out the survey, uh, we send it out to a small sample of all AI membership. So we take all the AI members, uh, we have email addresses on file, um, and then we take out a small segment of it and we send out the survey to them. Um, and so for this particular survey, we got about 350 total respondents. But the first question we ask is, you know, do you actually invest in individual stocks? Or are you mostly saying holding funds or ETFs? So we had about 350 people to the original question. Um, of that, about 250 people said, I invest individual stocks. And so those that, seg that sub-segment of 250 people are the people uh, that we actually surveyed and asked them about their investing style. So um, again, it was a random sample of AI membership and then a, a sub-segment of that, that people raised their hand, said, yes, I wanna participate in a survey and yes, I want to actually share my information with you. Uh, and so we've done this with all the big question surveys is we do, we take this small sample um, of AI membership and you commonly see this in surveys where it's really a random sample of whatever their database is. Um, and then they use that group to survey uh, members. Now, could there be people who are like, I don't wanna take a survey, I'm not gonna respond. And those people have a strong bias in one direction. Uh, absolutely, but you, you have those in, any survey that, that goes out where you always have these people that I'm just not going to take that survey. That makes sense. And yeah, I 100% agree. And um, so during, you know, in the, in the survey, we also asked members about which growth and valuation metrics they looked at. Um, so I wanted to ask you what was the most common and were there any thoughts um, on their choices? Sure. So it's really two things for growth. Uh, we saw a lot of people looking at earnings um, and then value uh, we saw members saying they look at the price to earnings, the P-E ratio, and then dividends, uh, particularly dividend yield. Uh, what was interesting on both growth and value was there was less interest in sales. Not to say that several members didn't look at metrics such as price of sales, didn't look at revenue growth, but more people looked at earnings growth than they did revenue growth, and more members looked at the price to earnings ratio uh, than price to sales. Uh, the dividend ratio wasn't surprising. Mean, dividend yield wasn't surprising because we did see that preference for dividends. Um, and a lot of members obviously would want to see dividend growth. Our dividend yield, not only is it a measure of income, uh, but you can also use it as a valuation metric as well. How does the current yield compare to the historical yield? Uh, so there wasn't a lot of surprises. We did see a lot of members, however, say they combined traits and maybe they looked at more than one valuation ratio. Maybe they looked at more than one growth ratio or they looked at a combination of valuation and growth. So obviously, if you have a stock with a low PE and strong earnings growth, that's a wonderful combination. Uh, it tells you maybe the market's underestimating the growth prospects. Um, so it doesn't surprise me, but it was good to see members actually saying, I do look at this fun, at this metric that I can quantify, uh, because in that case, it takes some of the emotional component out of it. If you know 
I want a PE to be no more than X. I want a growth rate to be at least Y. And again, you're actually using a quantifying a quantitative metric that you can apply over and over. And that does lead to better investing decisions. That's excellent to know. And, um, you know, one of the most interesting questions that we asked members, at least in my opinion, was what prompted AI members to sell a stock? Um, and so fundamentals top the list, but there were other, you know, reasons as well. Uh, could, could you uh, highlight a few of those and then um, just kind of go into, you know, what actually prompted those AI members that took the survey to want to sell a stock? Was it, was it psychological risk? Was it other reasons? Um, if you could expand. Sure, absolutely. So, right, fundamentals did top the list. It was interesting because we didn't know for sure what they would what they would say. Our suspicion was it was going to be tied uh, to the reasons they buy, uh, and we saw that uh, valuations uh, did top the list. If a stock's valuation got too high, that ties in with the preference for value. If you're buying a value stock and it becomes a highly valued stock, uh, then the reasons you bought it no longer apply, and you should sell a stock. Uh, we also saw people saying they, they would sell a stock if sales disappointed or earnings disappointed. Um, again, if you're a growth investor and you start seeing weak growth or perhaps a negative growth, meaning instead of rising, sales or earnings fell, that would be a reason to sell a stock because the reasons you bought it no longer applied. Um, and then we also saw several people give us just one-off reasons that were kind of unique uh, to them. Uh, but I think overall, it was good to see members articulating reasons they would sell. Um, it did suggest that members actually did have sell rules. Uh, and I think having sell rules is really important because again, it takes that emotional component out of your decision. Uh, we did see members sometimes say though, I would sell a stock when I found a better candidate. So a stock that perhaps better met uh, the characteristics they want in the stock, which are all good reasons. Uh, what was interesting um, is you do commonly see analysts downgrades, uh, get talked about on TV, uh, the stock's falling because analysts, you know, X at brokerage firm ABC, you know, lowered their ratings. Uh, but we really didn't see that mentioned too much. Uh, some members did say, yes, an analyst downgrade would cause me to sell it. Uh, but most really set them aside and really downplayed them. Um, and there is a long history uh, of analysts sell ratings actually outperforming analyst buy ratings. But I think overall, uh, we, we did see from the, uh, from the responses signs that members are disciplined in their decisions. They do actually have a sell philosophy and a reason for selling, um, which you know goes to show that they are listening to what we're doing. Uh, but it also shows that as a group, they tend to be more disciplined um, and tend to be more rules-based, uh, which does lead to investing in success. So it's what we suspected um, because we've certainly been preaching it, uh, but it's always good to see members saying, yes, I really am disciplined and I can't articulate the reasons why I would sell stock. That's excellent. And I mean, our founder, um, you know, Jim Clunan, he, uh, he stressed the importance of, you know, creating those buy rules or those rules and a specific plan and then, you know, be able to stick with it. So that's excellent to see that other individual investors are doing the same. Absolutely. And it's so important to have those rules. And I just want to add, you know, there's this talk out there where the individual investors, quote unquote, the dumb money. Um, and I think when you look at the survey and you see what people are saying they do, um, very, very much individual investors are in the smart money. Uh, they are disciplined. 
Um, and so, and I think when you look at some of the things that go on the market, you can't always say, well, the institutional investors are the smart people because when you look at some of the flows and some of the things that happens in the market, has you wondering, you know, are they actually the ones that are, are kind of dumb and are they the ones kind of making silly decisions with uh, their choices? Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I think that's why AAI always wants to empower the individual investor and, you know, because they do have that power and they do have that, um, you know, control over their um, their investment. So it's, that's excellent to hear. Absolutely. I also wanted to ask you about, you know, what, what they found in the survey about finding stock ideas. So uh, what were, you know, AAI members looking at when they were trying to choose which stocks to add to their portfolio? You know, it was interesting. There was definitely a mix on there. Uh, model portfolios and newsletters topped the list. Uh, almost by two-thirds of members said they use those. Um, but we also saw over half the respondents say use stock screens. Um, and I'm someone, I've used stock screens for, well, probably decades at this point, making myself feel kind of old. Um, but uh, I'm a big fan of stock screens because they're quant basically quantitative database filters. And they, they identify stocks that an investor may not have otherwise even considered that has the traits they want. So it was great to see them using that. Uh, in the model portfolio news, uh, newsletters, we obviously uh, published several internally. I did see I, met, I did see response saying, you know what, I used our dividend investing newsletter. I look at our model shadow stock portfolio. So it sees, it's great to actually see them taking advantage of our tools. Um, in the case of stock screens at AAII, all members have access to our 60 stock screens. Uh, some members said they actually do use our Stock Investor Pro uh, screening and database program. So it's great to see them taking advantage of those. Um, also, we did see some members saying, you know what, I do look at analyst recommendations. It was interesting. They're using analyst recommendations for ideas of what they might want to look at for buying. Uh, but again, they're not, they're really downplaying the, the downgrades when it comes to selling. Um, and obviously, the other thing that was interesting is certainly if you turn on CNBC, you read Barron's, you go to Market Watch, whatever, tons and tons of stock ideas outside of investment media. Uh, probably about one out of three of our members said they actually get ideas from that. So, but we did see a lot of members saying, you know what, if I hear of a stock that sounds interesting from someplace, I'll go investigate it myself. Um, so they're still using it, but they're really using it as, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll take a look at it versus, oh, this, this dude was on CNBC or this smart lady was on CNBC talking about the stock. Uh, I'm going to buy it. No, they're like, if it sounds interesting, I'll go research it, but I'm not going to just buy a stock because someone says I should. I'm actually going to kick the tires, look under the hood, uh, so to speak, to make sure it is a stock that I personally want to own. Uh, and that's great. That is, I, I agree. You know, it's it's great to see that people are doing their own research and they're not just blindly following someone because they've heard, you know, they have a good reputation or something like that, because that's never, you know, the market is volatile and it's not always contingent. So it's always good to look at the numbers. Absolutely. And um, I just wanted to add just a final uh, question. You know, was there anything that you wanted to highlight from your article um, that, that we haven't previously covered? Just a couple of things. I think one of the things that we've talked about a little bit, but I think, you know, when you look at AI members, I think we can extend this to individual investors as a group as they're not, they're not one dimensional when it comes to selecting stocks. As we said before, some of our members are really into dividends, some are value investors, some are growth investors. Uh, we do have members who are chartists who use technical analysis. So they're very wide 
um, you know, variety of investing styles, and there's never one investment style that fits everybody. Uh, I've seen research before that suggests whether you're a growth or your value investor is partially determinant at birth. So we did see that. Uh, but as I've said before, I think we also saw a lot of members having a systematic approach to investing uh, where they are actually looking at specific criteria and using rules to determine how they make their buy and sell decisions. And again, those rules did, did vary from respondent to respondent, um, but uh, they're definitely following rules, which, which is great. It goes to show they are listening to us or perhaps when they already came to us, they already were disciplined investors, had rules based, um, and they're using some of the data, some of the information we provide to them uh, to firm up the rules and perhaps even uh, tweak their processes to make them a little bit better. But uh, it's, it's great to see this. It is, it is. And yeah. it, great. That's excellent to hear. Thank you so much, Charles, for uh, sitting down and chat with me about your article. Sure, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Jenna. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and uh, I just want to remind members that they can view the latest issue of the AAII Journal by visiting AAII.com. And yeah, thank you so much uh, for your time, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too, Jenna. Awesome. And now for a message from our friends at Discover Bank. We know as individuals interested in building investor wealth, you never want your money to be idle. Even small dollar amounts for short amounts of time should be working for you. With that, we're pleased to share information from our partner, Discover Bank, on deposit accounts that keep your money moving. You can choose from several options to help you meet your short-term or long-term financial goals. The best part? All of the deposit accounts offer preferred member rates. Take a look. With Discover, you can earn over five times more interest than the national savings average with preferred member rates and pay no fees. That's no fees, period. Plus, no minimum balance is required. You can access your AAII member savings account with Discover Bank from your smartphone or tablet, so it's easy to keep your money moving in the right direction. Open an AAII online savings account to start saving for the future today. Visit aaii.discoverbank.com to learn more. Did you know through Discover Bank, AAII members have the opportunity to save with high yield CDs, savings and money market accounts, as well as IRA CDs? Also, AAII members receive preferred member rates on all Discover Bank products. You can visit aaii.com slash saving products to learn more and open an account today. So we hope you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. I want to thank Charles Raplett and Spencer Jacob for delving into their articles with us. I really think Charles Raplett and Spencer Jacob have unique perspectives on the role psychology plays in regards to the overall market, as well as the decision to pursue certain stocks and strategies. And as always, please remember to click the subscribe button if you'd like to be alerted of future II shows. You can always catch a replay of tonight's event by visiting our YouTube channel. And make sure to register for upcoming AAII events and webinars by visiting aaii.com webinars. And if you're an investor on the go and want to catch the II show while driving or going for your daily walk, you can now follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. Also, members can read both articles in the April 2022 issue of the AAII Journal by visiting aaii.com journal. And with that, we wish all of you viewing good health, good fortune, and a great evening. Thank you and happy investing.
the Individual Investor Show. Did you find what you were looking for? Subscribe to the show.